All right, so so you're in college, you built a $7 million a year roti business, which is freaking impressive. Now what happens? Maybe uh, two months after that, I declared a $3 million business bankruptcy and a personal bankruptcy, completely flush cream. Everything sold, pay off business debts. And so that was my graduation gift, I joke. <laughs> Oh, dude, I just got into I just got indigestion. That 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 that's that's horrible. And I guess I like a bank. But you were doing fine. You were paying your loans. You were good. They just decided they don't want to do business in that sector anymore and pulled the loan. Yeah. And, and you know it. the banks have incredible powers if you look yeah. at the fine print of any of the contracts to do these things. Wealth, taxes, and just living your personal life and protecting what you have and doing it in a way that is just awesome. It's a win-win-win, right? This isn't a, a world I've been immersed in now for years. And you watch politics, you watch the news, and the rich are many times vilified. And, you know, there's, there's just, especially around the, like this tax term. And now me being someone who I, I classify myself as someone who's wealthy, who's made it, who's successful. And I actually, it's funny because I actually look at everything I do as a partnership with the government. Um, I invest a lot into the country and into the economy and I actually pay a lot of taxes. And so it's been an interesting personal battle for me watching what's happening in the, in the, in the news and in the media. But beyond that too, just it's been fascinating for me as I've grown as a entrepreneur, investor, uh, as I mature, I'll tell you one thing right now. For those of you who are below 25 or 30, you're watching this and you're like, blah, blah, blah. I know. Trust me, you get older, all of this stuff becomes really important. I had a baby. She's 10 months old. All of a sudden now I'm super concerned about making sure she gets so much money when she, you know, when I'm gone that she doesn't have to do anything, um, which is probably not the right thing. I should you know, teach her to like be better, but like I'm a parent now, so, you know, I just want her to live a great life. Um, I'm all of a sudden super, you know, I did some calculations because I had some really bad tax advice early in my career for the first like 10 years of my career. I'll tell you guys something that'll keep you up at night, keeps me up at night sometimes. I calculated how much I could have partnered with the government, invested differently to have not paid the tax at that time to maybe pay later. Had I gone through that approach, the amount I ended up paying in taxes combined with, like, I can't even, you guys can see me, like, I'm, I'm like, it's hard to say, but if I take compounding interest on that money at an average 10, 12% index fund, the amount of money I paid unknowingly with bad advice was going to be worth over a hundred million dollars to me by the time I was 65 years old. That's a lot of money. So that's why I take this stuff very seriously. And that's why I've got my dear friend, uh, someone who I have hired to consult in the past, will continue to hire, uh, joining us today to talk about life, liberty, taxes, fun, trust, estates, all the stuff that you guys might think is boring, but we're going to make it fun and interesting. We're going to teach you some amazing things. Sid Pedinti, what is up, my friend? Thank you and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on, first of all, such short notice. Truly appreciate it and I'm grateful for that. No, I'm look, uh, anytime we can get knowledge out, the faster, the sooner we can, this podcast is meant to serve. And um, for those of you who are listening, I'm telling you guys, 
I, I look, I'll, I'll open up right now. The minute I, I, I have a great estate attorney. I hope he's not listening to this. I love him to death, but half the time he starts talking, I'm like, <sighs> I'm like, dude, what the heck? They're, they are some of the most boring humans on the planet. I mean, and the estate attorney I have right now, he's like 10 times more exciting than the one I had before him. It's a very complicated topic and it's not fun to talk about, but it's so damn important. And when I was talking to you, you, you expressed the benefits of things that I didn't know about that go way above just, Hey, protecting your estate. But like you, there's benefits today that I could, I could have, my family could have, I don't know, man. I just talk to me about this. By the way, guys, Sid is the first lawyer in a long time. I don't let lawyers on the show. You know, I, I kid, I, I love lawyers. Um, I pay them a hell of a lot of money. Um, my cousins are lawyers, and I, but I feel like if you ever meet a lawyer, like you have to poke a lawyer joke because it's like mandatorily required. Uh, Sid is a lawyer, he's an attorney, but he's a very enterprising attorney. He's done some killer stuff. Um, he's helped, uh, I don't know, how many nonprofits would you say you've helped by now? Probably filed over 5,000, got, I don't know, $200 million odd in grants and all kinds of funds. It's and insane. That That's where Sid and I met. So he helped us with our nonprofit get about a $120,000 grant from Google for ads. Um, that's crazy. 5,000. Holy smokes. All right. Well, you're a good person. Um, that's awesome. Sid, talk to us. Where you got my attention is you've got this new type of trust. I, I, I don't know anything about it. I want to learn more. But, you know, also talk about like your experience working with so many clients and what you do and I'll t take it away and I'm going to poke you with a lot of questions. Yeah. I mean, I think it's worth just starting from scratch. Um, I'm from India, like you. I come from a family full of engineers and doctors. Hey, what part What part of India? I'm curious. Southern India called uh, Hyderabad, where all the tech stuff is. Yeah. Padinti, because that's a, I've never heard that last name before. So I was curious where that came from. It means big house, apparently. Right. And I guess somewhere along the line, somebody had a big house. You like uh so be honest, you like biryani? I do. Yeah, you got, you're from Hyderabad, you have to like biryani. All right, sorry, continue. Yeah, so um, I mean, I, I was born and raised in Dubai and then from there uh, moved to India for two years in a remote part of Southern India to a international boarding school in the middle of a forest, very interesting place, moved to Canada. Uh, and when I was right about towards the end of high school, my parents were like, hey, go be, you know, either uh, an engineer, doctor, didn't kind of hit with me, decided I came across uh, Kiyosaki's book. And I was like, hey, this is interesting. This is actually what appeals to me, investing and entrepreneurship and hiring people, et cetera, decided to pursue that path and uh, ended up in business, opened a bakery when I was just entering university. Oh, that's interesting. All right. I didn't know that. And so my bakery was called Mr. Roti. I produced at scale rotis, tortillas, uh, paratas, all that stuff, and sold it to the local grocery stores in Toronto. There were a ton of grocery stores. And so that's how I, that was my first gig of, I guess, oh, business ownership. You've been, you've been like everywhere. So, so for anyone who doesn't know, rotis and parantas are, for lack of better examples, a fancy type of tortilla that Indians use with their meals, right? So, yeah, a lot of people know naan um, or nan, as people as Americans would call it. Um, Toronto's got a massive Indian population. As a matter of fact, um, my my wife has family there. We go at least once a year, and some of the best Indian restaurants 
are in Toronto, man. They are. She'll go there and she loves going food. And we can't find a going restaurant for the life of us in the entire like tri-state area where we live in Washington, D.C. And in Toronto, there's like seven of them. And I'm, I'm, I don't like going food, but she, she'll be in bliss heaven eating. And I'm like picking at the fish and I'm like, ah, you know, but she loves it. So I can see. So was the business successful? Did it do well? Oh, I mean, from this was when I was just entering university, 2002, I think, 2001, 2002. Um, by year 2005, we were doing about seven million bucks a year. Um, it had blown up. We had a 10,000 square foot factory. I employed like 25 full-time, you know, chefs. I had all kinds of massive equipment. Wow. Whole production. Wait, so 7 million a year, we're only supplying it to grocery stores in Toronto or did you go like? I expanded, yeah, it was all across the US. Uh, I had contracts with all Air Canada, American Airlines. I used to supply frozen roti and they distributed it on the planes. Wow, amazing. So here's a fun fact for you, you might appreciate. My uncle, uh, so in, in, in Hindi, we would call my mamaji, right? So my mom's eldest brother, who is now since passed, um, his claim to fame, this guy was uh, in India, he was quite the enterprising industrialist. He built factories, built crazy stuff. He built a machine that, could, that, that produced 10,000 chapatis, now, guys, chapatis is a different kind of roti an hour. It would make 10,000 an hour. It was a huge machine. It was like the size of a freaking massive like lecture hall. And he sold them to Air Force, like air, um, like bases, like, uh, sorry, not Air Force, military bases in, you know, in UAE, India, Pakistan, like the like these big air bases. He sold them to um, Gurdwaras, so like uh, temples. That would do like, you know, they, they serve a lot of food. I actually um, bought one of those. I, I went to India, found a factory that produced them in Delhi somewhere, an engineer who, who was, I can't remember his name now. Um, and so he produced one of those and he was like, this is a revolution machine. Anyway, I bought one. He transported to Canada to my factory. We built it. I hired engineers to run the whole thing. So we were like the revolutionary roti factory there. Uh, who took over the market. How crazy would it be if you had done business with my uncle in the past? That, that would be because he was one of the it was, he was the leading. He had a lot of patents on it, too. So. Um, all right. So so you're in college. You built a seven million dollar a year roti business, which is freaking impressive. Now what happens? And so 2005, early 2006 recession, early recession signs were there in the marketplace. Um, Canada is much more conservative as an economy than the U.S. And so I at this time had, I don't know, three to five million bucks worth of equipment and, you know, leased stuff, right? Massive industrial equipment, like freezer trucks, the entire works. And so they came and shut me down, ended up, um, you know, closing that entire banking operation, wow. came in there, negotiated for about six months, ended up and literally like closing door. One day I show up to the factory and I see this excavator blocking my entrance. I'm like, what on earth is this? And this Italian mafia guy comes up, who's the landlord. He's like, nobody's going in until I get paid. And so li liquidators came, they're like, hand over the keys. That was the end of the show. Wait, I wait why? What happened? I'm sorry, I, I don't understand. Why did they shut you down? Just cause? So the, the, the banks were pulling all the commercial operations in those industries, those specific industries of the industrial factories or whatever. And so 
they kind they came in trying to negotiate a buyout of all the stuff, like a liquidated sale, which I didn't want to give up the business. And so ended up ultimately saying, you know what, let's just declare bankruptcy, close a business. I'm okay writing. I thought the I owed about 3 million bucks worth of business debt. I thought all that could be wiped out through the, the business bankruptcy, right? So long story, you know, legal disputes, et cetera. Finally, I was like, you know what, let's do a fire sale. Let's liquidate it. I'll do a business bankruptcy, shut everything down, fire to everybody. And then ended up going to a bankruptcy court where they started doing audit, right? Transaction by transaction, all my bank records. And there they found that I had used my business bank for certain personal things that they argued were personal. Um, McDonald's, you know, like, let's say I go to a bar or something. And we do this all the time. We swipe business cards thinking we get business deductions and other things, routine things that we all do on a daily basis without even thinking, saying, let's get a 50% deduction of the business, meals, gas, et cetera. Yeah. I could not prove a lot of those were exactly business related when they came and audited me during the bankruptcy. And so then this, they concluded, well, you have been commingling funds. And so the term piercing the corporate veil is what happened. I had made a lot of money. I'd already invested in condos, lands, all this kind of stuff. They found all the stuff, which is in my name, forced me to literally liquidate during the process, flush out my personal assets to pay off business debts. So 2006, I was graduating. Uh, May, I think I graduated. It was like my 23rd birthday, I remember. And maybe a two months after that, I declared a $3 million business bankruptcy and a personal bankruptcy, completely flush cream. Everything sold, pay off business debts. And so that was my graduation gift. I joke. <laughs> oh, dude, I just got so. into I just got indigestion. That 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 that's that's horrible. And I guess I like a bank. But you were doing fine. You were paying your loans. You were good. They just decided they don't want to do business in that sector anymore and pulled the loan. Yeah, and, and you know it. the banks have incredible powers. If you look yeah. at the fine print of any of the contracts to do these things, it's happened to me. Uh, it's happened to me um, when Frank Dodd Act got approved by Biden, sorry, by uh, Obama, the banks were no longer allowed to lend to small businesses, pretty much. It was considered too risky. And I had a $750,000 credit line, which I had revolved and used three times at that time. I was on my fourth go at it. The bank loved us. My bank was a small regional bank. They loved our account. They loved us. They had given us the money three times. I, I was on my fourth one. And it just so turns out, this is during that economic downturn. I was in a bit of a bad way and we needed that money. Frank Dada gets approved. The bank comes knocking on our door and says, we're pulling the credit line. I didn't even know they could do that. I'm like, what do you mean you're pulling the credit line? They're like, you need to pay 750. I'm like, I don't have 750. And they're like, well, then we're going to have to go into some kind of bankruptcy proceeding. I'm like, what? I'm like, this is insane. I've done business with you guys so long. Like I've given you money and and the CEO of the bank finally showed up. I'll never forget. He was almost in tears because he said he had no choice. He's like, I tried to not take this money. So what the government did is wired the banks large sums. He got $60 million given to him by the government, but he had to sign these new terms for lending. And he's like, I don't even want to sign them. He's like, it's not, I don't have a choice. He's like, and by signing these, I can't have this out. So he found a way to buy us about 60 days. And he was like, that's, that's all I can do just to help you out. Because I was a young, I mean, I was 20. 25, 26 years old. You're you're putting me out of business. You're gonna make me declare bankruptcy. I didn't do anything. I've been paying it back. 
So it's crazy to see what, what banks can do. And for everyone who's watching, if you've got a loan, they can call it at any time, most, most times. So yeah, I was 23. Exactly what happened to me. It just happened to be a larger amount. And I had at that time, I was like 19, 20, getting these stuff. I put my dad as guarantor. I never, you know, for, you know, foresee that yeah. these happen. Anyway, he had to go bankrupt because of me. Um, and so 2006, I come out of college or university bankrupt, my dream shattered. And I was like, what am I going to do now? Uh, and I literally had nothing. Else. That was my dream. I was like, my my roti factory, for lack of a better term, was exploding. And I was like, all right, what do I do now? And so I was about to go into depression, right? And I was like, what do I do now? And so I was like, the, the bankruptcy lawyer was this old Jewish guy in Toronto, really nice guy. Uh, I was like, can I just come work with you? Because if this is happening to me, I'm sure there's others who are going to go through the situation. I'm happy to answer the calls at the front desk. You pay me whatever minimum wage. I need something to do. I don't want to go pick up a random job somewhere, right? I was going to, I don't know, go do retail or something. And so ended up, he said, okay, fine. There was a, a lady going to mat leave. She's like, you can take her post at the front desk. I was like, sure. Started picking up calls three months. Into three months, I'd picked up like hundreds of calls, took down the questions of people who are going bankrupt and or about to go bankrupt, explained my story. And so they would come into the office and ask for me, can I see Sid? And so routinely after about a month or so, the lawyers kept saying, hey, Sid, you know, have you considered maybe um, setting up your own consulting firm or perhaps sending us leads because everybody's coming and asking for you? And so that was a spark in my head saying, oh, maybe this is an avenue I can actually make money from. Um, and so that's what started my curiosity into what started off thinking I need to learn the law so I can avoid these mistakes. That was my first intent of even joining the bankruptcy firm, taking up a couple of the you know crash courses they recommended to me, certifications. But my goal was to learn the law, understand the credit system, what's happening behind the scenes so I can avoid exactly what just happened. Uh, ended up going to law school, actually ended up working there for a couple months. Immediately, like four, three or four months later, ended up starting my own consulting firm in Toronto. Um, it was called Clear Dead Solutions. And at the time, I had a you know, bunch of clients and friends working in the radio TV space. And so I did an interview on the radio. I had a little bit of money saved up uh, from the gig, did a radio interview explaining my story. And then immediately, I had a flood of like hundreds of calls coming in. Wow. And so immediately, I was like, well, this is my business. So I end up setting up a small office. And uh, I think the first year of and this was me not knowing the technicalities of the law, nothing. I just knew how to talk to clients, explain my story, get the right information, and I would send it back to the lawyer. And I started charging a fee for it, 500 bucks per consultation, because I knew uh, how the law worked, what they were looking for, what the court and creditors were looking for, and from a debtor perspective, what information is you know, beneficial to give or not, right? Yes, truthful, but doesn't mean you have to volunteer unnecessary information. So that's what I would consult them, how to go talk to the court, how to go talk to the trustee, bankruptcy trustee, the creditors, how to negotiate. I think the first year we did close to six, 650, 700,000. This is like three, four months immediately. After. I was still in bankruptcy at this time. But you're an attorney now at this point. Yeah, I'm an attorney now. But this was this is when I was still in bankruptcy, like fresh out of university. 
Um, so I ran that from 2006 to about 2008, uh, which is at that point decided, let's go to law school. And I was just curious to just learn more. Um, my business in Toronto was bankruptcy firm. I had set it up. I franchised it to other lawyers and accountants in other areas. So by this time, I it was sizable enough that I was spending 50, 60 grand in TV, radio ads, bus stop, billboards, those kind of things. Um, and so picked up incredible momentum. Uh, and so from there, franchise it out for a fee, consulting fee. I would, based on the location, if it was outside the city I grew up in, which was called Mississauga, right outside of there, I would, I would have a receptionist pick it up and then send it out to those locations. They handled everything. I took a fee, franchise fee, 20%, 30%, whatever it was. Anyway, this business was running great. I had five locations. Things were pumping. I was not involved. Decided to go to law school. I went to law school at LSE, which is in the UK, uh, London School of Economics. Um, and so I was running this firm while I was in law school in the UK. And so every three months, I would fly back, make sure everything's good. Nobody's trying to screw me over and fly back, finish school or whatever. Did that for two years. Uh, it was very stressful, as you can imagine, running a full-time business. I would still take calls over Skype. Back then, it was Skype. And so I would do calls over Skype and then have my dad show up to the office to collect the cash at the end of the week or whatever, right? I wouldn't trust anybody else there. So he would go deposit it. So it was doing insanely well. I mean, as a part-time business, right, with me not involved. Uh, from there, I ended up moving to California. I didn't want to move back to Toronto, didn't like London, moved to L.A., to do uh, LLM, which is a postdoctorate, and I did a business and tax LLM in LA. Uh, did the bar 2013, immediately set up a company there called California Law Services and duplicated this exact system of running ads, radio ads, some Google, I think Facebook. I'm not sure Facebook ads were there back then, 2012, 2013. I think they were just starting to come out. Um, that's probably where I first remember seeing you. I'm like, hey, who's this Indian guy doing webinars in the marketing world? That's rare. Because <laughs> all the Indian people I knew were either lawyers or doctors. Uh, even to this day, pretty much either in tech, engineers, or doctors, right? Um, and so anyway, long story, that's what I started in California. And it was, did a lot of business restructuring. That was primarily what I specialized in. By this point, again, franchise out in California, found older lawyers who sucked at marketing. I was really good at marketing. I would get the leads, filter all the clients in, and then franchise it out so that they fulfill it. I didn't have to run the fulfillment. Um, did that up until about 2016, 17-ish. And then, you know, over the years, I, I've always been curious into legal and tax strategies. I've attended multiple webinars, et cetera. I conduct research almost on a daily basis. We all read emails, right? Almost every day, like seven days a week, 365 days a year. And I subscribe to a lot, a lot of legal stuff. And so inevitably I end up reading one thing or another. It was about four or five years ago, I came across first tax strategies. And even though I did a tax LLM, I was doing like a junk professorship, like online, different things. Um, there was a code, a tax code that involved trust that I never came across, which fascinated me, right? And I started digging deeper into it. 
And all of a sudden, I started seeing at seminars, people talking about this stuff. Till then, I guess they were talking about it. I just never paid attention. And all of a sudden, it was like, oh, okay, this is, this is what these guys are talking about. And essentially, in a nutshell, my research led me to believe that trust, at a core essence, so trusts have been, the concept of trust has been around, I don't know, a thousand years now, right? Since medieval England. And it is exactly what it sounds like. It's an agreement in trust, right? It's one person's in trust of something else. And so the concept of how does a trust now get involved with a business? How does it involve with real estate, crypto, all of these different things we're all investing our money in became relevant. And the deeper I dug in, yes, the more complex it got, because now we're talking about gift tax, we're talking about the IRS, we're talking about business laws, we're talking about real estate, investment laws, capital gains, 1031 exchanges. I mean, there are so many different areas all pumped into one equation. So it took me four or five years worth of research to go down that path, discover what is going on, how it works. Um, and so literally up until last year, I was in research mode, four to five years worth of deep research to really decipher what it is. I spoke to a ton of attorneys. I spoke to like 70 accountants. I called up all kinds of firms asking questions each one more confusing than the other. <laughs> I, find, I find that to be very true. Yes. You know, and uh, ultimately, I, you know, I had to just start from scratch and say, okay, I take the interpretation of the IRS. And so I went down the path of what does the IRS say about trust? What did they think about estates? What did they think about businesses? Digging deeper and deeper into the tax code. Uh, I'd say I spent about four years now almost on a weekly basis, a couple hours a day, digging into the tax code, understanding the nuances of it. And wow, it is, it is an incredible, you know, incredibly complex piece of body that yeah. um, <laughs> there's so many nuances. So like you said earlier, when you say partnership with the government, I actually truly understand that now. And the power of understanding how to leverage these tax codes that are actually there for our benefit. So in a nutshell, with the trust scenario, the way the IRS talks about trusts are in very similar to a business. When you have a business, right? Most people start at their sole proprietorship, an LLC or incorporation, the three forms. Now, they may create an LLC or an incorporation that has a separate identity, but for tax purposes, they may be taxed as an S-corp or a fall-through, right? They're, they're not paying a separate tax in the eyes of the government. So yes, arguably in an LLC, when somebody says I have limited liability, in my case, what happened to me when they pierced the corporate veil, you know, 99% is in a way limited compared to 100%, right? Mm. And so when we control as shareholders, 100% of your company, when you are in a lawsuit, it's the shareholders generally in the lawsuit, you could be 100% liable, right? There's always that little asterisk, the fine print, even in government, you know, the way you be structured businesses. So that was what I had to kind of understand. And the key is that liability, at least legal liability, follows ownership. That's the core essence of all this. So the key question became, how do I separate ownership of assets as an individual and what I want to keep for my family and my legacy very far away from my business debts, my creditors, 
where I'm exposed to liability. So that was my core goal over the years as I got deeper and deeper in so that I don't, you know, what happened to me never happens again. And so the goal was now, how do I create all these barriers in between so that it's like good luck trying to sue me, right? Trying to get a penny out of me. And so in the eyes of the IRS, trusts are similar to businesses. You can have what is called simple revocable trust, which is what I would say 90% of the trusts out there are simple revocable trusts. They're an extension of the person. There are no added tax benefits um, except mainly probate, right? They avoid probate if you put your property in there and you change the trustee, the next of kin, your wife or kids don't have to go to probate court and that whole grueling process. However, for tax purposes, it's a flow through. The person creating it or the beneficiaries, just like the individual in the business, ends up paying the taxes, right? The other flip side to that, just like an incorporation that has its own separate subject to devil taxation, where now the board members are not liable for corporate debts, truly, when you give that layer of separate, you know, separation. So let's say you have the incorporation that's owned wholly by another incorporation that then has board members, right, in a different state. So just in that scenario, there's two layers that some someone has to go through to even get to the board members to sue them, right? One state, Wyoming, let's say, now they're like, whoops, only to find out there's a board sitting in you know, domicile somewhere else in Nevada, got to move suit there, only to find out that company now is owned by multiple members, one of which might be a trust, right, in a different state. So good luck going there. And so the key is now, how do you use and leverage these trusts that the IRS looks at as what is called a complex trust, just like what a business subject to double taxation, a trust can opt to be subject to double taxation in the sense that it is not owned by anymore one by the the person creating it or the beneficiaries anymore. It's a separate entity. It's a separate taxpayer. In the eyes of the IRS, that's like you and I submitting your taxes. Two separate entities, right? Your business, my business, has nothing to do with each other. We may be conducting business with each other, right? I may be on your board. You may be on my board. But for tax paying purposes, these are two separate entities. And so that was my curiosity. How do I leverage that system now to, number one, separate myself as far as possible from business, debts, liabilities, et cetera? Number two, if I can use this or a series of these trusts to shield my assets so that if I use a trust name to buy property, let's say, I'm not the name on that. It's an anonymous name. Let's just call it some random name, ABC Trust. I might be the trustee of that. My kids, six and three right now, Ajay and Dia, are the beneficiaries of that. That trust is a participant in a holding company. The trust is allowed to be a shareholder, just like a corporation or an individual, a trust fund. Now, when I register a property, for example, at the county, you know, book uh, records, it's the trust name. The trust owns, for example, this property that I'm standing in right now, sitting in right now, speaking. It's where the trust owns this property. Ajay and Dia, the beneficiaries, live in this property. I'm the trustee, right? I control all the assets, everything else. I'm taking care of the property. In those scenarios, you're treating the trust almost as a LLC, as a different business, a different taxpayer, right? It's not liable for... The, the things that happen in the trustees world, let's say business debts that I incur, the lawsuits, 
I have two layers of trust, my personal level. You know what I mean? So now we're talking about creating multiple entities in between, all legal, under the law, operating, self-governing. And the advantage of this particular, what is called a complex trust structure, irrevocable complex, is proving, number one, look, I'm not creating a trust just to evade a lawsuit. I know somebody suing me, hey, all of a sudden I put something in a trust, the lawsuit's gone, I take it back in my name. That's a revocable trust. Here, we're saying we're doing a legitimate legal conveyance of property into the trust. If you want to buy back that property, you got to buy it back just like a, you know, a separate individual, a taxpayer, right? So now it's a legal entity that's going to own those assets. And so the goal is now, how do I remove any ownership of my name where liability follows ownership out of my name using these independent trusts where I am the trustee, I control every dollar, it's complete discretion what gets distributed, what is accounted for, what is accumulated, what is retained in the trust. And the advantage of this structure is that according to the number one, the IRS tax code that relates to specifically to trust, that if you meet these conditions, you can use those and state statutes as well, is that once money enters in the trust scenario, you're subject to, the trust is subject to trust accounting, trust taxation, which is separate from individuals or businesses. It has its own tax code. You know, we're taught that there are two tax codes for business owners and individuals, right? I used to think that for a long time until I discovered all this. And I was like, wait a second, there's actually three, which is one for trusts and estates. It's a completely separate tax code. And under that, any money that enters a trust world, if the trust does not dictate how that money is going to be accounted for, is going to follow state or IRS federal tax code. Under both those scenarios, any property gains, for example, that if the trust if the trust owns a property, sells it, normally you'd be subject to capital gains if it's on your name. In the trust scenario, capital gains are automatically what is called principal. Principal is not counted in that year's taxation, right? So the concept of tax deferral, right? When people think of tax deferral, you have things like 401ks, IRAs, Roth IRAs, 403bs, et cetera. Typically, people who are working companies have this option by the government that says, put your money aside in these pension plans. We're not going to tax you right now, but when you withdraw it, you'll be taxed. That's the whole concept. The trust operates in a similar way. Actually, if you look at where those 401ks are going, they're generally in some kind of a trust fund that they then you know distribute or invest or whatever. Here, it's similar to that where money that enters the trust world in trust accounting terms, if the trust defines that that proceeds, that gains is considered tax deferral allocated to the what is called the corpus of the trust, the trust principle that is distinct from income, distributed or withdrawal income. So the whole concept similar to tax deferral is in a trust scenario, if you want, you can define the trust to have an accounting system the way you choose as a trustee or whoever's drafting it to be similar to that. So the way I draft these trusts are that money coming in is automatically considered part of the, you know, the allocation to principal. In my scenario, the trust that I manage where I'm the trustee, where Ajay and Dia, age six and three are the beneficiaries, there's going to be no distribution to them for the next 20 odd years. So in that particular trust scenario, money entering that trust, I have roughly 20 odd years of tax deferral 
until I would draw it and pay them a distribution, which is a taxable event. So the question is, does the trust pay taxes or not? Yes, of course. All income is subject to taxation, except as otherwise there's an exclusion. That exclusion, like in the 401ks, it's you put it away in pension funds. When you withdraw it, you pay tax. In the trust scenario, enters the trust world. You can use that trust, whatever the terms dictate. In my trust, the way I draft those, 20, 30 years at a time, the taxable event is triggered if there's a withdrawal and paying the beneficiaries, right? So hopefully... Yeah, what if... It, it does. I, I got lots of questions. I'm sure people are uh, listening and got lots of questions. So first of all, that was an amazing story. I didn't know that. I've known you for quite some time. And I didn't know your story, which was, which was powerful. Um, so in this case, let's say in that 20, 30 years, you pass away. And so the real purpose of a trust, I think the people most typically know is, hey, avoid some of those hefty estate taxes um, because you don't own anything. You know, you die. It doesn't matter. Technically, does if you die and that money now is gone to your beneficiaries, does that is that a taxable event now? Do they just get or is it literally only when they take distributions, they physically remove the money from the trust to their name? So how does a death work? Does that become a taxable event? Great question. Yeah, great question. So in a very simple scenario, in that instance, right, I'll give you my instance. If I die, I have a secondary trustee, my wife, she steps in and manages everything. No taxable yeah. event. All I'm doing is changing the trustee, right? Like changing the owner of a company, a CEO of a company, right? Yeah. The beneficiaries, Ajandia, let's say, fast forward 20 years, I'm getting older, Right. And then I'm like worried about them. Or let's get, I'll give you some different scenarios. Number one, I'm like, hey, you're amazing. Your, your maturity is amazing. You can handle your own money. And I want to give them full living, living expenses or marriage or whatever it is. Right. They want, I'm like, here's some money I've accumulated. It's in your name. I'm going to go ahead and create another trust instead of distributing it as a withdrawal of income. If I withdraw it and pay to them, the trust. Tax it's a taxable event, right? Yeah. But if I transfer it into another trust in their name, that's fine. It's still trust to trust, not triggered as a taxable event, right? So now I can create a trust for her for 25 years. She's a trustee, her kids or whatever other beneficiaries, all that money passes through in a, without taxation. There's no gift tax, there's no estate tax, there's no transfer tax, um, there's no probate tax, right? And in the earlier scenario, let's say I'm about to die. Let's say something happens to my wife and I both. Then I have to name a secondary trustee, right? If my kids are not old enough, let's say it happens, God forbid, in the next 15 years or whatever, I'll, I'm assigning, you know, another trustee, like my trusted friends or my whoever, right? My dad or whoever else is alive. And so then the integral part of me giving this massive estate to them is educating them on how this stuff works. So they're not going to blow it. They're not going to create these taxable events. So it's almost a family generational educational kind of approach that I have taken to this. So I teach my wife about this. I, I've trained my dad, my brother, my sister, um, you know, and even my close friends who I think something happens to them right now in Dallas where I am, it's going to be my immediate neighbors or friends who are going to step in immediately, right? And so I have informed them that, hey, this is my intention and I've made some power of attorneys, whatever. But Either way, there's no taxable event. All you're doing is changing the trustee, just like changing the director of a company, right? Mm. The trust owns a property. If the property is sold, 
that those monies are proceeds that are going back into the trust. Again, there's no taxable event unless we convert it, take it out as withdrawal and distribute it. Okay. So that's the whole key is then how do you live in this tax deferred environment, right? That was my goal is to then take that one step further. Okay, that's great. Number one, using these, let's say, two trusts in place. So my standard structure, what I recommend for business owners or entrepreneurs, even professionals for the most part, if you have an LLC, now, if the LLC is ever subject to lawsuit, a lawsuit, the shareholders might be a part of it. So then we create a trust, let's call it the business trust, okay, which has the language that allows a trustee to open a business and conduct anything on behalf of the trust. Now, the advantage, so now we have two different layers. So one, we have a LLC that has a partnership with let's say an individual, me, as 10% owner, 90% owner as this business trust. In that scenario, if I amend the paperwork so that distribution of um, profits are not, sub, are not generally based on capitalization or standard state law, and I amend it so that distribution is based on actual stock ownership or interest in the company, in that scenario, let's, let's just do simple math. I make a million dollars in my company. I'm operating at 50%, 500K is the profit. If I was a sole proprietor, now I'm, that's what I'm going to be taxed on minus deductions, whatever I can show, itemized deductions. If I have an LLC with an S Corp, I can show some portion of it as a shareholder distribution, not taxable. The rest of it, I'm still trying to find deductions as much as possible. On 500,000, you're still going to be hit with, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80K worth of taxes, right? On three, four hundred thousand dollars worth of income. The other scenario is now you have a partnership where it's another taxpayer, the trust recognized, recognized by the government to be an investor, a shareholder in a company. If I move in that scenario, 90% of revenue of 500K in profits to the trust which is subject to its own accounting system. As an individual, now I pull in 50K, 10%, I'm happy to pay taxes on 10% on 50K, whatever that amounts to, right? On my 1040. In the trust scenario, that trust has its own EI number, separate taxpayer ID. It files its own taxes. It's called Form 1041, which is different, only trust file it. Under the trust scenario, the government is looking for income and deductions. That's it. There's no expenses. There's no itemized expenses that you have to report on. It's income and deductions. So gross income, everything that the trust invests in, oil and gas, shares, crypto, businesses, stocks, doesn't matter, comes in as gross trust income minus deductions of anything the trust owns. So if I have commercial property that the trust now is a majority owner, deductions for that can come out of that trust income, right? All those deductions. There's a tax code that fascinated me. It's called the 643, which in the trust estate tax, which defines essentially income, what income is, okay? That defines income as, um, so it allows, in a nutshell, allows the, the trust to dictate how accounting shall um, shall work for the trust purposes, right? And in there, if the trustee decides I'm not going to make a withdrawal and distribution, or I'm not going to set it aside permanently for charity, 
Instead, I'm going to allocate it to the trust fund for a future purpose. It can be for you know, retention of assets. It can be for upkeep of property. It can be for future investments. It can be for insurance policies, whatever. doesn't matter, right? The trust is a taxpayer. It can get involved in all that stuff. All of that is not subject to taxation right now. Maybe at some point when I pull it out as a distribution, there's no limit on how long that, there's no stipulation that I have to withdraw it and pay it to them in the next five years or 10 years or 20 years. So can I pause real quick? So so go back to your example, 90% of the 500,000, which equates to 450, goes to the trust. So you're saying the way you coded all 450 of that does not get classified as traditional income as we know it. It gets classified in such a way that the trust does not have to pay taxes on that 450 today. It would have to pay it on. So the 450 would ideally grow, 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 grow. You would be investing it, grow, grow, grow. And the government's basically saying, hey, at some point, somewhere in the future, someone's going to take a distribution on that. When you take a distribution, we're just going to charge you tax at that point. So the government says, hey, we're investing alongside of you. We're hoping this thing grows. So we will be we're happy to not take our money today. We'll take it later which we think will be a bigger chunk later. But that's basically what you're saying. So if someone, let's just say someone has a company already running, we'll take even bigger numbers just for sake of examples. They're making 5 million net profit a year. After all deductions, yada, 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 it's 5 million. The company's been running for 10 years already. You're saying there's a way to come in, restructure, put a put a, uh, put a a trust in place, take 90% of that that company's ownership and dump that into the trust, the owner can keep 10%. Now all of a sudden, 4 million, 4.5 million would be going to the trust, and that would just be immediately not income. And so the taxes on that would just be saved, and the the personal person would be paying taxes on the half a million. And that 4.5 million would now be just deferred because it went into this particular trust. Did I summarize the mathematical correct? Okay. All right. It's not a question of is it subject to tax? It is. In some of the in some of the way, shape, or form. So if you take that 450 in the trust, invest in real estate, you're going to be subject to property tax or whatever else. So you're paying tax yeah, there, yeah, yeah. right? If you buy insurance, there's all kinds of other stuff, right? So yes, the government's taxing you other ways, but using this formula, I can defer taxation on business distributions if that's my source of income, arguably, and in another setting, legally opt in to be taxed in a different manner. The trust itself, you know, is not so that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And so let's say you have a series of these trusts now. So I did one this morning actually on someone who makes five million in a year in pure net profits. I saw their tax uh, return for the last couple of years. They paid somewhere in the range of five to seven hundred thousand in taxes uh, on five million, right? With all deductions, every possible crazy deductions in place, Augusta rules and you know, craziness, right? The guy was about to go buy some really expensive stuff because just avoid taxes. And we're all guilty of that. I bought insane stuff just to avoid taxes in the past. But now, ever since I discovered this, this gives me options. So the whole thing about this is options, right? As an individual, as a taxpayer, as a law-abiding citizen, I wanted to leverage what, you know, the ta- the uh, the drafters of the law people who we have picked right in our, in our society we have elected for them 
And those lawyers have drafted, envisioned a different scenario. In the eyes of the IRS, uh, a trust is nothing but a conduit for the way people want to allocate, accumulate, and distribute their income, uh, keeping their future generations in mind. So in this trust structure, I'm not just talking about taxes. We're talking about legacy planning, right? I can plan perhaps two, three different trusts for my kids separately. I can buy assets that I can dedicate just for them. Um, as a trustee, I can invest in minerals, oil and gas, all kinds of you know precious metals. And I have found experts actually over the last couple of years, the best in the world who specialize in those areas from insurance to uh, getting mortgages for people who have trusts to precious metals, et cetera. And essentially redistributing business revenue. I know what I need for the year to live as an individual. So I kind of reverse calculate, okay, if I draw 100K a year, whatever, I'm happy to pay tax on that, but that's sufficient to meet all my personal needs. So then the question becomes like, you know, now the, the world becomes much more intentional. If I'm making a transaction, um, so let's talk about abuse of, of trust. Yes, this is a very powerful system we'll be talking about, right? If understood the right way, and we'll dive back into it. But the flip side is a lot of people are hesitant about trust because they think about audits. They think about, well, this sounds too good to be true. How come nobody's figured this out? I ask myself the same thing. I mean, it is so nuanced just by describing what I just described, right? It took me 15 years of legal research to finally get the light bulb and say, oh my God, this is how it works, right? And so I went on a path to find all the attorneys and the accountants who knew this stuff. And in the whole country, I literally found five attorneys, okay, who are uh, all in their late 70s, early 80s, who've been practicing ex-IRS agents and blah, 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 who have been practicing. I found about seven or eight accounting firms who specialize in this stuff. Most of them, again, are older attorney uh, accountants who are now selling their practice to younger protege, when I say younger, 40s and 50s, more experienced accountants. And I went down that war path to, 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 for them to prove to me, okay, show me the audits. If all from a legal perspective, all this checked out, I saw all the IRS case studies, I pulled up hundreds of tax codes. I was going to ask you that. Has it been tested in court yet? Has the IRS tried to come after it and say- Oh, say absolutely. And in yeah. fact, the IRS on their, so the IRS website is, in my opinion, one of the most complex websites and also most comprehensive websites out there on the planet. The amount of data on there is insane. Uh, and so anyway, I have full-time legal researchers. This is all I've assigned them to do in the last couple of years, conduct legal and tax research for me every single day. I have, the amount of data I have is insane. So what we discovered is the IRS, there's something called private letter rulings. A taxpayer, this, this is the amazing thing about the IRS and America, right? Like what it, what a person can do here that most places they can't do in the world. A taxpayer can write to the government, the IRS, and ask their opinion in a private letter addressed to them about a possible scenario. Hey, I'm about to do this. Am I interpreting the law the right way? Will I trigger taxation that I'm not paying? Is this going to, you know, am I going to face penalties, et cetera? They'll make a, it's an expensive process, but they'll come back, make a ruling on it, and issue a letter. And I have dug up over a hundred of these letters relating to these scenarios about the trust. I want to make sure each and every interpretation from the sale to 
the LLC to the restructuring to does that trigger gift taxation? I mean, the entire thing, what I just spoke about, I dug in each and every ruling, case study, Supreme Court, et cetera, about it. Everything checked out from a legal perspective. Then I was like, well, what does the IRS say? What are the accountants? Because now from a legal perspective, it sounds great. But it sounds like, again, the IRS are the liaisons who are going to tell my story in numbers to the IRS. They got to understand this. And when they came back and they were like, yeah, we've been filing this stuff for 47 years. One of the guys like, how old are you? Said I'm like 39. He's like, I've been doing this 47 years. Right. And I was like, wow. And so they showed me all these records and audits and everything came back, checked out. And, you know, they were super confident. I'm like, okay, this sounds amazing. Let's do it. And that's when I decided last year, mid last year, this is too good to. So I tested it. I've been testing it for a while. Everything checked out, all my research checked out. That's when I was like, all right, I'm ready to go share this with others. Every angle that I've tried to uncover, every stone that I've tried to open up and see if there, there are worms has checked out. Let's go do this. Actually, it was a webinar call uh, in December when I first even thought of offering the conversations because uh, I needed the accountant and the rest of the pieces in place because yeah. those things are going to come up. And I needed them to support me and say, I'm here to back you up and support you in front of the IRS. Well, well, so, and I'll tell you, I mean, obviously when you first told me, I know you, so if I didn't know you, then I would have been like, hey, whatever, dude, like, I'm not going to have this conversation. But the first trigger that came to me, I was like, this sounds too good to be true. Like, this is, this is crazy. Um, and, uh, you know, I've just been going through some of my own stuff this last year has been pretty interesting. So it's not been top of mind, but I told you, I was like, Hey, I need, we need to talk. Um, because so to me it sounds like this you got to plan out the the 10 20 the 10 90 20 80 that percentage ownership in such a way that you can make sure that you're getting enough money to like live the, the life that you want to live but a lot of people don't realize your trust can buy stuff trust can own cars trust can buy some of the fancy stuff the amount of money that we actually need to live isn't much because if you want to buy a mansion to live in or a, a vacation home the trust can buy the vacation home if you want to you know travel and blah 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 the trust can do a lot of that stuff for you but um so i'm like couple a couple of things and then i actually want to wrap it up by basically telling people hey if this sounds interesting to you you should reach out to sid first of all like i'm just gonna let you guys know right off the bat and when you do reach out to him tell him tell him onyx sent you for nothing other than he should know i don't get any money for this i just want him to know um that a friend is supporting uh sid i'm like in the middle of the process right now i have a i have a question so my stuff is very intricate because i know that you know you can only put i'm starting this too late i should have done trust stuff 10 15 years ago i just you've probably to be honest with you of all the trust attorneys i've ever talked to state attorneys you've probably been the easiest to understand now i don't know if that's just because i've talked to so many and i have some level of knowledge or if just you've figured out how to like make it really simple yeah so yeah, well, I could see. Yeah, I could see that. So, so I, when I started working with attorneys, um, my goal was, of course, the estate protection, the you know the the veil that's hard to pierce, um, and then of course the the getting things out of my ownership, out of my name. Um, and there's a certain amount. I forgot what the number is, but there's like an X amount that you can gift to a to a trust right now. They're saying that number will come down with the current administration in the future. But right now, you can give X amount between you and your wife without it being 
considered a gift tax. Like there's a certain amount. So my my team has come up with this structure. They've already started building it. It's a multi-trust structure. Um, we've paused for a few months uh, for other reasons. Is your trust a very specific type of trust or is could I just take what you're doing and segue it into what I'm already doing? And it's more of like, hey, so you've already got these trusts. That's cool. Let's write the charter differently so that they're recognizing the revenue differently. Like, is it a no, you got to set up the trust all over again. It has to be done the way I do the trust. Or is it like, okay, cool. You've got a shell. You haven't used it yet. Hey, we can repurpose it and get it to, you know, this is a personal question. It's not applying. to. Yeah, yeah great question. In fact, I get a, at least a handful of people every day asking me that, right? Because a lot of people have got trust and then they realize, wait a second, this sounds very different from what I've had. Um, I can't tell you the amount of times I have seen people who have trust when I look at it. First of all, I would give a tip that 90, I would say good 85, 90% of the trust out there that people get as part of either estate plans or even sophisticated estate plans are extensions of themselves. They're revocable, grantor, um, simple, what is called a simple trust. They don't accumulate money. You don't invest out of them. It may hold assets for temporary purposes of avoiding probate, right? But the, the this structure, what I'm talking about, from the way I understood it, and after doing all my research, it's a whole different structure. So somebody usually has a trust. I've looked at multiple trust documents. If they have a simple revocable trust that they're not paying separate taxes on, they don't have a trust fund that defers income, chances are they don't have these provisions in place. This tax code that I discovered, 643, and the way that's applicable is very nuanced. That's And so... This is why I only found a handful of attorneys around the country who did it. And the other next segment of companies who I found know and tackle this stuff were actually large investment firms, Charles Schwab and other large, you know, mega corporations who deal with ultra wealthy people. Minimum investments were five to $10 million, even to, you know, make use of something like this. And those scenarios, you have to hire them as a trustee. They manage like a broker your funds and they take a one to 2% fair market value of your estate, what they're managing for you. So that's a whole different business that, that, that I finally understood. Okay, that is how these corporations are able to handle wealthy estates by taking a percent, maybe some basic fee, but you become, they, you're giving away, you know, your trusteeship to them. Yeah. I've figured out how to, I've read all those contracts, literally had to decode them and reverse engineer the manner in which all of this is done. So that ultimately, like I just actually worked on one early today. The guy had a simple trust. It was, it was a person making about 5 million bucks a year. He had a, a trust in place. He already brought that to me. The lawyer who advised him or who was setting this up and he paid a lot of legal fees for that. They advised him to put another investment company as the trustee in case something happened to him. And so then I asked him, do you know what you just did? And he goes, yeah, they're the trustee after I die, right? You have given away your ownership of your assets, whatever you've built all your life, into the hands of a bank. And the trustee is not responsible for F-ups, so to speak, bleep, 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 right? The trustee is not responsible. They're not accountable. And this happens actually all the time. You read about it in newspapers. A wealthy person died. All of a sudden, they're in dispute. 
The bankers blew their money and now the heirs are left with peanuts. This is exactly that. So, so, so going back to my, my original question though. So if there's an, in, in, if there's a structure in place right now, you're saying, Hey, if you want to do it your way, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta start from like, you have to have a new thing set up. It, it, you can't take an existing one and convert it into your type of trust. Possibly. You can possibly do it. Like, let's say somebody already moved a property into a revocable trust and that's on title then yeah, we would move it from there into, into an irrevocable trust. So something you said earlier, when I you know, conveyed the property, when I gifted to the trust, those limits, right? Here, we're not talking about a gift to the trust. We're talking about a sale to a different taxpayer. This is, so if somebody, if the bankruptcy court were to come back and say, hey, you sold your property to somebody else and looks like you know, you're the grantor, you're all the, you're XYZ, no, because- it is an irrevocable, legitimate transaction under the law for valid consideration. The trust is a new owner. Nobody owns a trust. It is a self-independent governing identity, right? There's no owner of the trust. It's not an extension of anybody. And so that's the benefit of having this. Imagine it's a third party that's controlling essentially. No, it's fascinating, man. Um, I I will tell everyone who's, who's watching, if you're a budding entrepreneur, just getting started, the thing that's interesting is that it doesn't seem necessary right now. Um, even if you're a professional and you're making good money, what, if I could go back in time and I, I wish I had set up some more of this stuff earlier because it only gets more and more complicated as you go. It only gets more and more expensive. And I think one of my biggest hurdles now for the last year and a half that I've been wanting to put this stuff together, one of the biggest hurdles has been that the complexity of it. Um, and, and I don't like to do anything I don't understand. I mean, I'm a big Warren Buffett believer in that. Like don't invest in that which you don't understand. I don't like it. So like that's been a big kind of like hold back for me. So for those of you who, who are looking into this, they, it's, this is not about just saving money on taxes. It happens to be a nice benefit, but actually the big core benefit of this for you is protecting your assets, protecting against you know suits. Uh, I love that. I, I wrote your quote down, said legal liability follows ownership. It's totally true. Um, Sid, how do people get a hold of you if they wanna talk to you about this structure and getting it in place for themselves? Yeah, my website, lawandtax.com. Lawandtax.com? That's right. All right. Perfect. Uh, everyone, I, I can't highly advise enough that you speak to speak to Sid. I mean, obviously, this isn't some kind of personal endorsement. I'm just having him on my podcast. Make good, wise decisions. Get professional consultation, which happens to be what Sid is. I mean, he's a lawyer. So uh, but everyone make, you know, at least what's what's the worst that can happen? You 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 learn. Right. And I'm telling you personal experience. Um, I had Sid on this podcast specifically. And I mean, Sid is one of our sponsors for all of our big events that we're doing right now, too. It's because I personally realized one of the areas I could go back and redo and just kind of revisit. I should have done this stuff differently. And even right now, I'm telling myself, I, I promised myself that by the, this summer, it would all be done because the more I wait, the longer I wait, the more complex it gets. The more companies I start outside of the trust, the com more complicated it gets to get them into the trust versus do it once. And then all the new companies you start, you start from within the trust and it's just easy then, right? It's like super, super simple. But Sid, it's been an honor, man. Thank you so much for being here. Everyone, lawandtax.com. Get over there, book whatever time and work with Sid, learn from him. He's got some amazing videos also that he's put together where he teaches this stuff. Um, and so Sid, thanks for making yourself available. Thanks for being always one of our lead sponsors to our events. And uh, yeah, final word, anything you wanna say? 
Uh, yeah, well, it's Benjamin Franklin who says, you know, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. I went through that. Sounds like you went through that. People who are listening to this have probably been through that. And this is exactly that coat is what I pursued. And this is actually just part of that. You're, you're planning yourself for the future. Man. All right. Awesome. I Good, good, good advice. Plan, everybody. All right. So taxandlaw.com, get in touch with Sid. And for the rest of you, make sure you click subscribe, click the comment, you know, leave a comment, click the thumbs up. If you're on an audio podcast platform, help us climb those rankings. Leave us a great review and subscribe to us. This is Onik reminding you when life pushes you, stand straight, smile, and push it the heck back. I'll see you guys on the next one. Love you. Bye.